Let's uh, bow together in prayer. Father, as we open up your word, again, we ask that you would give us eyes that would see Christ and him alone. We pray in his name. Amen. I'm sure you have read about it, you've heard about it through various forms of advertising, but uh, whenever there is a product that is being pitched as new and improved, they just keep coming at you with new and improved. It could be a cell phone, right? Got to get the latest cell phone because now they have animated, animated emoticons, right? Got to have one of those. Or it's got to be maybe... Uh, maybe it's the fabric softener, you know, whatever it is that they've new and improved. Every time I hear a commercial like that, that my crazy way of thinking is, they are just, they have just admitted to you that the previous product they've been selling and promoting really wasn't that good. It had to be improved. It had to be something that's made into something better. And as I think about that, this acknowledgement that there was inferior qualities to whatever the product was reminds us that what? We should know better, and not everything that's being hawked out to us is something that we obviously must have. I've been thinking about this because as I think of the various aspects of false teaching in our world today, whether it be the cults or various sects and uh, false religions, they all seem to suggest somehow that they are the new and improved version of the true faith. They come and they try to persuade unsuspecting people that they have something extra. They have something that you can't find anywhere else, something more than just Christianity in its most basic form. And some people, of course, want to add to the, to the Christian faith tradition. They want to add certain practices that they think should be included into this understanding of how to know God. And so they take the ideas of other people and they say, okay, now here's what you need to follow as well, along with what is taught in the scriptures. Other groups would add philosophy. Other groups are going to add speculations by various false teachers, people who have somehow had visions from various angels or have uh, somehow act as the prophet of God. Now, this idea of marketing false teaching and promoting the fact that they have something new and improved is nothing new. It's been going on a long time, so much so that you read this, the Bible, you read this book of Colossians, and you realize that in the first century, there were various false teachers who were circulating around, and they were trying to undermine the confidence of those who were followers of Jesus, those who had been uh, who had adopted the truths of Christianity, and to try to somehow undermine their confidence in persuading them, listen, you need something new and improved. And so, from what we can surmise, the, the idea that they would say that to advertise that Christ alone was enough was something that they would certainly try to convince you otherwise. They would say that Christ was insufficient that we needed other forms of manifestations from God. We need other angels. We need other spirits to fully complete and help us understand what it means to know God. And the Apostle Paul, when he came to Colossae, he was concerned that this was going on. 
that there's all this spiritual fraud there. There's, and, and, and when you hear this kind of hucksterism of saying we need something more than Jesus, then he began to be quite concerned at the inherent weakness of that appeal. Because he says there's no reason not to be totally confident in Jesus Christ. That Jesus, in who he is, in what he accomplished, and what he gives to people who come to him in faith and repentance, cannot be improved upon. It is Christ alone is the one that we need. And so Paul here presents a powerful rebuttal. He is trying to show you how you shouldn't believe every false teacher, advertiser who comes around trying to say that Christianity and Christ alone needs to be improved. All this hype that they have. He's going to give three reasons why Jesus Christ and Him alone is sufficient for our salvation. Now I'm going to look at not just Colossians 1, which we could have built the whole sermon around there, but I wanted to hear those that passage read today as well. But I want to look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Colossians 2, verses 8 to 15. I'm going to read those together here. Paul wrote, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. You see how he's already zeroing in on people who would come up with something more new and improved. For Verse 9, For in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Christ you have been made complete. Christ is the head over all rule and authority. And in Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and in the removal of the body of this flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised up with Christ through faith in the working of God, who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile to us, And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And he, that is Christ, had disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus Christ. Now I want to look at three points Paul makes here. At least I'm going to draw those out of the text. It's very clear. I want to first of all consider Jesus' supreme identity. His supreme identity, verse 9. Paul writes that Christ, in Christ, all the fullness of God. What a statement that is. All the fullness of God. The sum total of all that God is in His being and in His characteristics, His attributes. All of this, all the fullness of God dwells in Christ permanently and continually. When Jesus took on human flesh... In his incarnation, he was not some sort of spirit being who only appeared as a man for a period of time. He was true God in human flesh. That's distinctively a Christian view. And now he is continually, he is still God. He is in glorified human flesh and he continues on as one who is truly God. What a change from 
And what a contrast from the new and improved spiritual salesman who promoted something far different. His name is Joseph Smith. Interestingly enough, he claimed to have seen some sort of gold tablets which no one else has ever had a chance to see. He claimed that there was some sort of strange language which no one else has ever heard of. And he, he claims that, along with the Mormons, that Jesus was actually a created being. That Jesus was not indeed one who in all the fullness of God would dwell, but that, that Christ, when he was brought as an incarnation, he was really a spirit man. And that's the way they understand his role here as, on earth. He was not unique as far as his nature was concerned, because the Mormons would teach that, in a sense, every exalted person will attain the same Godhead, Godhood, excuse me, that Jesus now experiences. In other words, uh, Jesus was at one time needing to become God, so all those who are glorified or who are uh, brought to a certain point where they too will somehow attain to this uh, Godhood. I mean, what, what false teaching that's somehow covered in something that looks new and improved, but is that which is damning and that which is dangerous. They would also teach that Jesus, of course, had to earn his own salvation. There are many other things uh, that they affirm that are false. But the, the Christian faith cannot be improved, my friend. And here in this text, any deviation from the biblical view of Jesus actually dethrones him from the position of honor and glory that he deserves. Holding any other view of Christ results in replacing him with an inferior substitute who's incapable of doing that which Christ came to do, to save and deliver sinners from their sins. Notice verse 9 again. In Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. See, Jesus did not receive a portion of God's fullness, but the fullness of God's nature continually abode in him. He did not merely just claim to be God, although Jesus did claim to be God, but notice, in him all the fullness of God dwelt. He is all indeed true God and true man. Who else can make this claim? Who else can credibly bear witness that this person is a, has an identity that I call the supreme identity? Who else can claim to be all truly God and truly man? I ask the question, only Jesus can calm the wind, only Jesus can speak and still the stormy seas, only Jesus Christ can successfully resist the temptations and the testings of Satan, only Jesus Christ can raise the dead. And so Jesus cannot be improved upon, his supreme, he is supreme in his identity and in his nature, there is no new and improved when it comes to Jesus Christ, as presented in the Scriptures. Now, the second point I want to make builds on that because it talks about the supreme victory that Jesus has accomplished over his enemies, over the powers and rulers that exist in this world. Now, as I've thought about this text and what Jesus has accomplished, I've thought about a story of a true story in which when I was growing up, there was a, a, a conversation going on as to who was the greatest. 
in all the world. And there was one particular person who came on the scene, and they, he just kept saying, I am the greatest. He would boast and continually echo that theme, I am the greatest. Of course, he's talking about the greatest heavyweight champion boxer of the world. At the time, the one making the boast was Muhammad Ali. And he continued to make that boast, and in many ways, he, looked, he was truly great in his boxing ability, as he was undefeated for many, many, many years. But then there came a time when there was scheduled a fight for 15 rounds with another fighter who was also undefeated named Joe Frazier. This was a big deal back when I was growing up. I mean, this was, and in looking back, again, some uh, sports writers would say that this was the boxing match of the century, where you have two men who both were undefeated coming at each other, and you say, well, who is the greatest? Who was the greatest? I can still remember listening to the match on the radio because I, our family would never pay money for any kind of uh, pay-per-view. I don't think there was pay-per-view at the time. Uh, and so you'd listen in on the radio for one round after the 15 rounds, and it was a unanimous decision. Joe Frazier won that fight. And so therefore, if you're going to claim to be the greatest, the way to prove that is to defeat your greatest opponent. And in verse 10 of this text, the statement is made that Jesus Christ is the one who is supreme over all. All different forms of those with power, those with authority, those with some kind of rulers on earth or even in the heavens. There is no ruler, there is no angel, there is no one who has any control over Jesus Christ. He is supreme over all. There's nothing that can prevent him from accomplishing his purposes. His victory over the forces of evil was made evident in his decisive events of his life, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. See, Satan tried his best to derail and destroy Jesus Christ. He tried there in the wilderness. Well, first he tried with King Herod to eliminate and kill all the babies being born at that time, uh, male, male babies. And then uh, he tries to derail Jesus by um, testing him and tempting him in the wilderness to violate the plan of God, to misuse his power. And then later, Satan schemes and he, he gets Judas to, to get motivated to somehow attempt to destroy Jesus by turning him over to the ruling authorities over the day and to somehow then have them put him to death by way of crucifixion. But rather than being defeated by Satan, it's interesting to think about this, Satan and his army of all sorts of evil spirits who had work at that time in history to somehow destroy Jesus on the cross, Jesus triumphed over his enemies he disarmed them when he was raised from the dead. Jesus not only broke the powers of death, but he vanquished his foes. Look at verse 15, where he talks there about he disarmed the rulers and authorities, made a public display of them, triumphing over them through Christ. It's interesting to think about vanquishing and triumphing over the forces of evil. Who has the power to do that? Don't we all long for someone who could do that in today's world? 
The scriptures teach that indeed Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus has rendered powerless the evil one, Satan, who had the power of death. He has rendered him powerless. What does that mean? It means that even though he still exists, he's a defeated foe. The powers of darkness that sought to oppose God's plan to rescue his people, to liberate them from the curse of death, they were resoundly defeated when Christ was raised from the dead. And then Paul takes, and he wants to use an illustration of this, and he just speaks to the time in which they live, and he says, if you want to show the triumph over someone's enemies, he says, you know what that looks like here in the Roman culture. And sure enough, they would be very familiar with that, Roman citizens, because the Romans love to put on display the proud celebration of any defeat of their military opponents. And I've read a, an account uh, if you look at verse 15, of course, this is what Paul's alluding to here. He's alluding to this idea of putting them on public display, the idea of overcoming one's enemies. There's a historian, a Roman historian named Plutarch, and he records that one day there was a three, over a period of three days, there was a celebration of the triumph of the Roman general Paulus had over the Macedonians. And there were three days in which the boulevards, the main thoroughfares in Rome, were decorated and there was a massive parade put on to celebrate the victory of this general. On the first day, you saw the chariots and various statues that were brought from this enemy land and they were paraded through the city in a very impressive way. Then the next day, innumerable wagons would carry all the helmets, all the swords, all of the, the shields of their captured, that were captured from the enemy, from the enemy troops. And they have them all piled on these wagons and they're just bringing them by, just showing all of their arms, all the things that they thought were going to defend them have done them no good. They're all defeated and disarmed. And then on the next day, the third day, you have the defeated king's chariot brought into the parade early on. And he's got his crown there displayed on this chariot, showing that he no longer can wear it. He's no longer a king of any worth or value. And so follows, following that, you have the defeated king's servants, and they're going down the street begging for mercy, crying out, have mercy on us, have mercy on us. Following that, you have the defeated king himself. They would bring him back alive, and they would have him wearing black, and he is obviously a person who is associated with endless prisoners who are with him, and they always made a point to put him on display as a defeated king. And at the end of the parade, having shown all of these things, all the defeated armies and the defeated king, then at the end, here comes the triumphant military commander. And he is put on a victorious, as one of the victorious general, put on his display on his chariot, he is adorned with magnificence. Uh, he is wearing a robe of purple interwoven with gold. I mean, he's just so spectacular in his appearance. And he's holding a laurel branch in his right hand, the victory thing. And coming behind him is members of his army, and they're singing the songs of victory. You talk about impressive display for three days, this kind of a parade. It puts Macy's Day Parade to shame right? 
Well, these Roman military victories made it unmistakably clear who won and who lost the battle. There was no question. And in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God the Father dramatically, publicly announced the decisive victory that Jesus Christ accomplished over the forces of evil and deception in this world. That's what he said in verse 15. He has made a public spectacle of them. Though they still exist, these forces of evil are defeated. And Satan and his demons, indeed, are assigned to march as defeated foes in Jesus' victory parade one day. There is no power that can intervene and bring about another outcome. You see, when Jesus ascended and left this earth, he went to glory and appears and returned there to the throne of God in heaven. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he is in the highest position now of, of honor, of power, and authority in all of the universe. That's what Ephesians 1 says. God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. That includes anybody who may seek to undermine his plans and his purposes. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, as I've thought about that reality, that this was put on display at the resurrection of Christ, then I'm thinking to myself, if you're here today and you're not necessarily a follower of Jesus or you're not really committed to Jesus Christ or you're not um, yielded to him, isn't it really rather utter, utterly foolish to think that you're somehow going to outrun Christ? To think that somehow you're going to escape His reach someday? Isn't it sort of rather stupid, and I'm sorry to put it in those terms, but isn't it sort of stupid to think you're going to outsmart Christ by hiding your sin, by somehow living as a hypocrite and not really being honest and truthful with who you really are? Because He can see through all that. And isn't it sort of crazy to think that any of us would be able to somehow outwit the king of kings with some sort of clever excuses or rationalizations to somehow make light of what we've done in dishonoring him or disobeying him? The Bible says all of us must give an account of ourselves to the righteous ruler over all. It is Jesus Christ. And no one will ever escape his judgment. Every evil act every defiant act of rebellion will be held to account by jesus christ and that was the unpopular message that the apostle paul got into so much trouble with when he connected the dots between the resurrection of jesus and the day of judgment sunday that everyone will have to give an account to him because there is no one greater he said this in Acts 17 he said god is now declaring to all men, that everyone, everywhere, should repent. Why? Because God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Through whom? Through Jesus, whom He has appointed, having furnished 
proof to all men that he will do this by raising him from the dead. So if Jesus is indeed this one who has won the victories over his enemies, therefore it makes sense to what? Get on his side in history. To be aligned with Christ, not working against him. And those of us who are committed to Christ, what assurance we have. That great song in Christ alone. He talks about there's nothing that's going to separate you from the love of Christ. There's a security if you are joined to Christ by faith. He is going to make sure that no power, no evil force, nothing that is beyond his permission will ever touch your life. And he will see you through to the end. And finally, fulfill his purposes in bringing you to completion, completing the work he started in you by grace. Well, that brings me to our third point. And that is what we see in this text, Jesus' supreme redemption. There's no need to improve Jesus, to have the new and improved form of Jesus. Why? Because look at this incredible accomplishment that he has done. When you think about how ruined our lives are, as people who have gone our own way and we have not followed the instruction manual of life and we've pretty much mucked it up in various ways in almost every area of life, it's amazing to see how gracious nonetheless God is in providing Christ to redeem us, to rescue us. If you look there in verse 13, he talks about the fact that you were dead in your transgressions and that he has made you alive together with him. There's so many ways of which Scripture talks about the fact that we are helpless. We are in a situation where, spiritually speaking, we can't fix or remedy ourselves, and that we are unable to do anything about our brokenness, and we need help from outside of us. We are enemies of God by nature. We are cut off from God. We are helpless to remedy our our desperate situation. And John, in John's gospel, Jesus said, no one is able to come to me, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws that person. Sorry, unless the Father who sent me draws him. So no amount of religious rituals, no amount of acts of kindness or contrition can somehow cleanse the wickedness in our own heart and soul. And that's why this redemption needs to be provided by somebody outside of us. Somebody who can take us out of the situation of desperate need and transform us into the people we need to be, come. And it's done by Christ alone. Notice this, it says in the text that Christ, Jesus Christ, is uniquely able to impart life. How can you impart life to yourself if you're spiritually dead? Only in Christ alone can you be raised up to newness of life. You see, united to Christ, we receive, we who are dead, receive life, His life. We are made new on the inside. When we're united to Christ alone, the powerless become powerful. And Christ alone can do this. No one else has the power to bring life to those who are dead in their sins. No angel, no church official. No spiritual giant can somehow impart life to you and in your soul. It's found only in Christ alone. Now see, uh, the other thing that's amazing about this text, look at verse 13. 
he talks about the fact that we are forgiven all our transgressions. Jesus Christ is uniquely able to liberate us from guilt and shame. Now, not only is an amazing miracle to be brought from death to life, but think about this amazing act of mercy and grace to think that one of the greatest gifts bestowed to any person by God is when a repentant sinner receives unearned free gift of forgiveness of your sin. We find two word pictures about this idea of forgiveness in this passage. Look at this. In verse 14, we see the word picture of and translated in this particular translation, the certificate of debt. Verse 14, having canceled out the certificate of debt. I know different translations render that differently. But literally the word means autograph. Someone's signature. What is that talking about? Canceled out the certificate that has an autograph of debt. Well, what he's talking about here. He's talking about the handwritten note that would be signed by a person who is a debtor who is saying, I acknowledge, I, have, I owe you this amount of money. Now, you think, well, what kind of system is that? Well, maybe you've ever gone to a resort. I know when um, my folks, my parents had their 50th wedding anniversary, they decided to take our whole family to a very fancy resort in West Virginia called the Greenbrier. I mean, it's the kind of place where you had to wear a necktie and a jacket to dinner. I mean, it is just too fancy for me. But anyway, we're there, and everything you did, whenever you wanted anything, just put it on the tab. Just sign your name and put your room number. And so anytime we do anything, when you have a snack or you go to some particular uh, form of recreation they offered, oh, just put it on the tab, put it on the tab. Man, I would have hated to see that tab someday when all of the folks of my family add up all the things that they put and sign their names to the tab, there comes a huge bill. Maybe you've been on a cruise where you have a little, you know, uh, arm band and the, here, just put it on this, you know, put it on this, charge it, charge it, charge it. Eventually it comes and says, you owe this amount. Now you see, we could call it an IOU in a sense. And over time, all of us, are amassing a vast list of debts that we owe to God, that accrue over all of our lifetime, that we're obligated to pay. And every time that we break God's law, in whatever way it is, in thought or word or deed, attitude, then we are signing, in a sense, the invisible form that says, yes, I own that, I owe, I owe, owe God because I've broken that law. So this builds up over a period of time. That's the first image in which he says, okay, we all have this thing, and the list is so long. It's incomprehensibly long. But then notice, secondly, he talks about another picture here. Our debts are completely erased. Completely erased. Verse 14, canceling them out. Now, I did some little research, and I found out that there are two ways, two different types of documents or uh, uh, material that you would write on in the first century. You would either write on vellum, V-E-L-L-U-M, which is a, a leather type material that you would be able to write uh, with ink and you could uh, write on that and keep record of whatever you're trying to record. And there was also papyrus, which is made out of a plant. It's like a very uh, stiff, durable form of what, what I call paper. 
like heavy-duty paper. And those, both of those substances, whenever you'd write on it, using the ink they had at the time, the ink they had did not have acid in it. And though, therefore, it never really went into the surface itself. It would just sit on top of the surface, either the leather or the papyrus. And since it wasn't never absorbed into there, and because it was expensive to get this kind of material, it wasn't just like buying a you know, ream of it. It was a very small amount of money. It's very hard to get hold of it. You would use it over and over. And so there would be a scribe who would come a time where you say, okay, I've got something else I've got to write down. I'm going to take some sort of rag, and I'm going to wipe this off and clean off the record of what was written on either the vellum or the papyrus. Now, what happens here, what, what Paul's saying here, is that Jesus took this lifelong IOU we have, this long record of what we owe to God, and he paid the massive debt that we owed when Jesus died in our place on the cross. And that this IOU was nailed to that cross above the head of Christ, in a sense, saying that this person on the cross is paying this person's debt in its entirety. And therefore, it has been paid, it has been wiped clean and put on that cross saying, it's paid in full. And because of Christ alone and his payment on the cross for our debt, the record of our sins is completely erased. And there's not a trace remains saying, this person owes, this person owes, don't forget this debt he owes. No, it's paid in full. It's only in Christ alone can we be fully forgiven. In Christ alone, we gain freedom from condemnation. In Christ alone, we can enjoy God. We can no longer live in shame, no longer live under the cloud of dishonor and disgrace. We can actually enjoy God because that debt has been paid. I don't know about you, but I feel like I have to tell most, I feel like I need to take a break from watching the news every so often. There's just so much in the news that's been so um, disgusting, I guess you'd say, of people and their accusations from long ago and all this sexual misconduct. And obviously as we read the hear about an abundance of these accusers who are coming now, and I'm glad they are, coming out into the open, making known what's happened to them, some of these people that committed these atrocities, these forms of abuse, I would think to myself, some of them thought, eh, these sexual improprieties, they've been forgotten. This is over. This is done with. It's been buried in the dust of time. But now these things are coming to light. Those that they abused are now speaking out and saying, me too. They're making known that these sexual assaults have really did occur, and they're holding these, uh, these accusers, these uh, abusers to public shame and dishonor by making known what they did in secret, making it known publicly. Let me just say this. We who have long ago, or even more recently, said things, or done things, or imagined things that were wrong, we have a rescuer in Jesus Christ. Jesus alone has borne our shame for our wrong. It is by His shed blood that He can remove not just some of our debt, but all of our debt. 
and that He alone can forgive. He, can, he alone can restore. He alone can set us free from all forms of condemnation. No one's going to stand before you at someday if you are in Christ and joined Him by faith. No one's going to say, yeah, but remember that time when? It's all been paid in full through Christ alone to all who repent and believe. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again are humbled as we think about the greatness of Christ, His supremacy, that there's no one greater than He. There's no way that Jesus could ever be new and improved. He is the only one sufficient and able to draw us to you, to reconcile us to you, to impart to us new life. He is the only one who can cleanse us from our all wrongs, from guilt and shame. He's the only one who can overcome our enemy, our arch enemy, Satan and all of his forces of evil. We thank you, Lord, there's coming a day where there'll be a great parade, a parade that will be enjoyed by all of the people of history who will see once and for all the complete annihilation and destruction of Satan and all of his forces of evil. But until then, Lord, we pray that we might not minimize or make light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a foretaste of that day of great uh, celebration and, and uh, supremacy. He will, be, he will be put on display and all will bend their knee to him. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts to not lose sight of the greatness of Christ. Open the eyes of those who are here today, perhaps, who have only just considered Christ or heard about Him or only thought about Him in a very superficial way. I pray that you would, even this day, cause them to be on their knees, to seek you earnestly, to find in Christ new life and a new heart, to find full forgiveness for their sin. And those of us who love you, Lord, and who have been joined by faith, I pray that you would impress upon us a sense of security a sense of stability, no matter what we endure in life, that you are greater than anything that we are facing and that you will complete what you've begun in us and that you are worthy of all of our sacrifice, worthy of all of our service, for you are supreme. You are the one who is worthy of all adoration and sacrifice. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen.